The sermon text for today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verses 12 through 30. Listen as I read God's word. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were sharing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tabar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam which is on the road to Timah. For, for she saw that though Sheila had, grown, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah said, the young Pardon me. The young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who, had, who were there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at NEM? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there haven't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah has, has told, was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. 
I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose sealing cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and said, and she said, so this is how you have broken out? And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zira. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Some of you are asking yourself the question, John, why do you do this to us? <laughs> Can't we have a normal Christmas like everyone else? <laughs> Glenna said to me before, she, I was helping her get stuff set up up here, and she says, have you read this passage? I said, well, yes, I'm preaching on it this morning, so yes, I have read this passage. And if you've known me for very long at all, you know that the answer to that question is obviously no, we cannot have a quote-unquote normal Christmas like everyone else. Amen. That's right. I don't get amen often, but when I do, it's from Tim when I say things like that. <laughs> As we come to this passage this morning, I think we need to pause for a moment and ask for the Lord's help. So would you bow with me? Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Lord, we give you thanks this morning that you have a heart to be known by all people. Thank you, Lord, that there is not one class or one group of people that you have reserved your special favor, your special love towards, but that you desire people from all over the world, from every time, every place, every country, every nation, 
Lord, you desire all people to come into relationship with you. Lord, we ask for help as we come to a passage like this this morning that is so filled with things that are culturally uh, foreign to us, things that would uh, seem offensive to us, things that would just sort of leave us scratching our heads, wondering what it's all about, what it means. Lord, give us your mercy as we look at this passage today. We ask for the special presence of your spirit to be among us, to be present with us in a unique way, and we ask that he would help us to see Jesus here today. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we are headed into a new series of messages that uh, is titled, The Mothers of Jesus, Stories of Hope from the Family of the Savior. And what we're going to be doing over these next weeks is we're going to be looking at the five women who appear in the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus that is in Matthew chapter 1. Now, this wouldn't seem strange to us to find women named in a family history like this, but we have to understand that in the ancient world, this was unheard of. Women were not included in these sort of genealogies, these family trees, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, why does Matthew, in his introduction to telling us about the life and the birth of Jesus, why does he include these five women? Why does he break from the norms of that day to highlight the lives and the stories of these women? And I think the reason is that Matthew is, as he's telling us about Jesus, as he's telling us about the coming of God's Savior, God's Deliverer, he wants us to hear about the birth of Jesus. He wants us to think about God's Messiah, his Deliverer, with the stories of these women in our minds. He wants us to be hearing about the birth of Jesus with something of the lives and the stories of these women in the back of our minds. Because they help us understand who this Messiah is. They help us understand who this Savior, who this Deliverer is. They give shape to who he is and what he came to do. And so what Matthew is doing here by including the names of these five women is he is highlighting them for us. These names would have jumped off the page to the original listeners, the original readers of this work. And so what he's doing is he's intentionally pointing our attention towards these women and asking us, know the stories of these women. That's going to help you understand Christmas. It's going to help you understand Jesus, the Messiah, if you understand the lives of these five women. And so what we're gonna do over the next uh, number of weeks here is we're going to spend time looking at their lives, looking at their stories, and seeing how that helps us understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Now, there's something of a thread that kind of runs through all of these stories. There's uh, more than one, but one of the threads that runs through these stories as a point of emphasis throughout all of these messages is this. The redemptive purposes of God move forward through the least likely people in the least likely way. That's one of the things that we learn from looking at the lives of these five women in particular, is that the redemptive purposes of God, the saving plans of God, move forward in the world through the least likely people that no one would expect and in the least likely way. And so that's one of the points of emphasis we're going to see over these next number of weeks, and we're certainly going to see that here this morning. So today we begin looking at the life of Tamar. And we look to her life as we see it in Genesis chapter 38. So if you have not already, make your way in a Bible, whether it's a hard copy or your mobile device, make your way to Genesis chapter 38. 
As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at it in three different parts. And the title of the first part is this, Judah's Deception of Tamar. That's the first part of the text we see, Judah's Deception of Tamar. Now, to see this, we have to look at verses 1 through 11. And if you are uh, paying attention, you'll know that we did not read verses 1 through 11 out loud this morning. That wasn't for purposes of we didn't have enough time. Uh, We didn't have those verses read out loud because there are children in the room. (laughs) You can go back sometime this week and read those or even silently to yourself right now and you can read what's in those verses, Uh, but we chose not to read them uh, because uh, they are not exactly rated G, okay? So I'm just going to do a little bit of a flyover of these verses where we see Judah's deception of Tamar. So we read that there's a man named Judah and he has three sons. So Judah, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, Judah is one of the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. So that's who Judah is. Judah has three sons. The two oldest of those sons are married. The youngest son is not quite old enough to be married, so he's, uh, he's not married. We don't know much about Judah's oldest son. We know his name is Ur. We know that he is the one who is married to Tamar. So Tamar is married to Judah's oldest son, And the only other thing we know about him is in verse 7, where the text says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We know essentially nothing about him, except for he was married to Tamar, he was a bad dude, and God put him to death because he was so wicked. We don't know what that is, what it looked like, but it was bad enough that God said, I'm going to put an end to this. Now, what would have been customary in that time would be when Judah died and his wife Tamar was widowed without children, it would have been the responsibility of the next oldest son in the family to have a family with the widow. Now that sounds completely crazy and strange to us, but the purpose of that was to perpetuate the uh, Ur's family line. So the line of the oldest child would be uh, preserved. His name would be carried on by having children with his, uh, by his wife, his widow, having children with his brother. And so this is what would have been expected, and we're told in the text with uh, more detail than we want to know that Onan was his name. He decided, no, I'm not going to do that. And the reason he didn't do it was because with his brother out of the way and his brother not having any children, Onan is next in line to receive the family inheritance. If he has a child with Tamar, the inheritance goes to his brother's child, that he fathered, and he loses out on the inheritance. So he says, nope, not doing that, and he refuses to have a child with her. We're told in verse 10, what he, that is Onan, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So this is Judah's two oldest brothers, we're told, are wicked in the Lord's sight, and God puts them to death. What would have happened next would be that the youngest son, Shelah, would have been given Tamar, would have been given Tamar as a wife. Except Judah doesn't want to do that. (laughs) Because what Judah is thinking is this. Every single one of my sons who this lady has been married to has ended up dead. You think I'm going to give Tamar to my only remaining child, my only remaining son, you think I'm going to give Tamar to him. And then he's probably going to end up dead too because she's cursed. Something's wrong with her. That's what Judah's thinking, and so he deceives her. 
what he says to her is, verse 11, Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So he's basically blaming Tamar for their death, even though the text tells us that they were wicked and God killed them because of their own sin. And he says, why don't you just go back home? Live in your father's household for a while. And once my youngest son grows up, once he's of marrying age, then I'm going to give you to him as a spouse. Except he has no intention of doing that. So he's deceiving Tamar. He's lying to her saying, yeah, go back home. Hoping that she's going to eventually forget about it. Or that her father's going to maybe find a different husband for her. Or that it's just going to kind of all blow over. That's what he's hoping. Except that's not what is going to happen. Now, I think we just need to recognize the situation that Tamar is in here. Because if all we have is verses 12 through 30 that you had read this morning, uh, we're going to look at Tamar uh, in, in a pretty negative way. We're going to look at her and say, oh my goodness, you dressed up as a prostitute in order to seduce your father-in-law for the purpose of having a child with him. You tried to get pregnant by your father-in-law, which is a sort of weird form of incest. But what we have to see is the situation that Tamar was put in, because that helps us understand why it was that she did what she did. Okay, so here's Tamar's situation. Tamar, because of the sin of other people, she looks like she's cursed. Judah's oldest sons were wicked in God's sight, and because of their sin, because of them being put to death, she looks like the one who's cursed. She looks like she's the problem. And of course, at this point, Tamar now has a label of damaged goods. She's been married twice already. And you think that in a society where a, a, a father goes out and finds a wife for his son, do you think anyone's going to go find someone like Tamar? She's already been with two men. She has a perceived barrenness. She's not been able to have kids with either of those, which we know was Onan's fault, not hers. So she has this perceived sort of barrenness. She looks cursed because of the sin of someone else. That's the position that she is put in. She's taken advantage of by Onan. The text tells us Onan was willing to take from Tamar the pleasure of having sex with her, but was unwilling to actually father a child with her like he was supposed to. So he used her. We see that she was abandoned. Her father-in-law, Judah, should have said, you are married now into my family. It's my responsibility to care for you. Instead, what he did was in a cowardly fashion, he lied to her. He sent her back to her father's household, filled with shame, filled with disgrace. And he now put her as a burden on her father's household. All of this has been done to Tamar. Okay, this is the situation that Tamar finds herself in. She's been robbed of her dignity. She's been robbed of her honor. She's been robbed of her future. No children. She's been robbed of her reputation in the community, all because of the sin of someone else. That's Tamar's situation. And Tamar is smart enough to know that her father-in-law is not going to follow through on the promise that he made. So what she does is she crafts a plan of her own. 
So we see, we see Judah's deception of Tamar, and now the tables are turned in the next scene where we see Tamar's deception of Judah. She deceives him back. She's smart enough to know that she's not going to get Judah's youngest son as a husband. And so she crafts this plan, which is, I'm going to dress up like a prostitute. I'm going to sit outside of the city of Anayim, and I'm going to seduce my father-in-law and have a child with him, intentionally get pregnant by him. That's her plan. We're told in the text that it was sheep shearing season. And Judah is on his way up to this town of Timnah, and along the way there's another little town called Anayim. And she dresses up, she takes off her widow's clothes, and she puts on her, uh, I'm going to look like a prostitute clothes. And she, I don't know, is there a store for that kind of thing? Or where, where do you get those? I don't know. Uh, not in my notes, by the way. Um, so she stations herself there along the road, intentionally trying to seduce him. She sets a trap for him. And of course, he falls for this trap. He takes the bait. And I think part of this is that she knows enough about this man, Judah, to know what kind of a person he is. She knows about his character. After all, he sold his brother into slavery, his two youngest sons who were formed and shaped in their character in his household were so wicked that God put them to death. She knows what kind of a person he is, and she sits there in waiting, and he solicits sex from her. He comes along and he says, in verse 15, Judah saw her, thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, obviously, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And so the next thing we see is they begin to negotiate a price. What's it going to cost? And the cost that they settle on is it's going to cost you a goat. And Judah doesn't have like a goat laying around. <laughs> so he says, okay, I'm going to go get you a goat. Uh, what can I give you as a kind of collateral? What can I give you in the meantime? And so what he gives her is his cord, his seal, and his staff. Now, these were three things that in the ancient world uh, were very personal markers of identification. This was something of a, of a family seal or a family crest or a signet ring that identified that one person very clearly. And so he gives her these things as a kind of collateral. So this is sort of the ancient equivalent of giving over your driver's license. You go to test drive a car and they say, give me your license. They keep your license. You take the car. Okay, in case anything happens, they know who you are. Same thing with this. He gives her these three markers of identification. They proceed with the act. We're told that Tamar becomes pregnant. After this, she puts back on her widow's clothes and then goes back home acting as if nothing is different. Judah, in the meantime, has gone out to try and, he's, went and he's got a goat, he's got the payment, and so he is now going to, he sent his friend to go find her to give her the payment so he can get his stuff back. And his friend can't find this prostitute. And he looks everywhere and he can't find her and he goes to the people in the town and he says, hey, uh, so where, where's that prostitute that was sitting out there? And they say, what prostitute? What are you talking about? There hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. What? Do, what? And so he's, 
probably feeling a little bit hot under the collar right now at this point, right? Someone's got all this personal identification. I've done something I shouldn't have done with them, and now I don't know where this person is and what they're going to do with this stuff that they have. So his plan is very simple. We're going to go home, and we're going to pray this whole thing blows over. <laughs> we're going to pray that this stuff never surfaces, that it just, just, we just move on from this, and nothing ever comes of it. So he goes home. Meanwhile, Tamar is already home, and we're told in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah's response is very harsh. His response in verse 24 is, bring her out and have her burned to death. Just pause and notice for a moment the hypocrisy, the double standard that exists here. Judah can find a prostitute along the side of the road when he feels the need. He can sleep with someone who's not his wife when he needs it or wants it. But when Tamar sleeps with someone who's not her husband, take her out and burn her alive. As she's being brought out to be killed. Presumably there's a, there's a group of people that's bringing her out to do this execution. And the text sort of makes it seem as if, I don't know if this is true or not, but it almost seems, seems as if Judah is not present for this. Can't imagine why he wouldn't want to be present for that. But Judah is not present, and so she sent a message to her father-in-law as she was being brought out in verse 25 and says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So Tamar, as she's being brought out to be burned alive, she says, sends a message to Judah and says, hey, Judah, you happen to know who these things belong to? Hey, Judah, you, do you happen to know whose things these are? Do you happen to, do you happen to know, Judah? Judah, do you happen to know how I came to be in possession of these things? And in that moment, he knows that he's been found out. He knows he's been found out, and his response changes from burn her to death to what he says in verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. And of course, Judah has set the bar pretty low here, right? So being more righteous than him is not exactly like, wow, you get points for that, buddy. Not at all. I actually think when he says, she is more righteous than I, I think the sense of what he's saying is this. What he's saying is, she was more justified in doing what she did than I was in doing what I did. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I was not justified in treating her the way I treated her. I abandoned her, I mistreated her, I abused her, I shamed her and disgraced her. I should not have done that. What she did was more justifiable than what I did to her. I think that's the essence of what he's saying. And as we look at their two deceptions of one another, we see that they're not the same. They're not the same at all. If you look at Judah's deception of Tamar, what you see is that Judah was obligated to provide a family for her. He was obligated to provide for her. That was his responsibility. 
And he abdicated that responsibility. He abandoned that responsibility and he deceived her in order to Try to think of a, the, a way to say this that the way that came into my mind, I shouldn't say it. <laughs> he deceived her in a despicable way. He's a coward. Her deception of him, she did not deceive him out of malice. I think the text is very clear that she did not deceive him in order to get back at him. She didn't deceive him and say, you know, you really hurt me. You've hurt me really bad, you've, you've abused me, you've abandoned me, and therefore I'm gonna get back at you and I'm gonna do it by dressing up as a prostitute and getting pregnant by you, that'll teach you. That's not what she's doing. Judah was obligated to provide a family for her. He refused to, and Tamar here is not deceiving him in order to get back at him. She's deceiving him in order to get from him what he owed her in the first place. He owed her a family. He was responsible to provide for her, and he refused to do it. And she says, okay, if you're not going to give me one of your sons like you're supposed to, I will deceive you, and I will get a family through you personally. I will skip your sons and go straight to you and have a family through you. This is what Tamar has done, and what she's done took an incredible amount of courage. In a way, what Tamar is doing is she's taking on herself the responsibility that Judah had. Judah was responsible to care for her, and she says, if you won't care for me, I'll care for myself. That's what she did. And so Judah is not saying here, you know, I, what I did was really bad, but what she did was great. He's not saying, the text is not setting up Tamar as like, okay, she's a great role model. You should pattern your lives and teach your daughters based on Tamar's life. The text is not saying that. What it's saying is that Tamar was more justified in deceiving Judah the way she did than he was in deceiving her the way he did. As you look at this chapter 38 of Genesis, this feels something like you're reading, a, it feels like you're reading a transcript of an episode of Jerry Springer, doesn't it? You read this and you're like, uh, this is crazy, this is really messed up, and the question that we sort of are left with is, why in the world is this in the Bible? I mean, if, if you're used to thinking of the Bible as like a a book that's going to give you a bunch of moral examples to follow, you come to Tamar and you're like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> well, what you're supposed to do is realize the Bible's not intended to give you a bunch of moral examples to follow. What the Bible's doing is something far, far better than that. What is the point of this being in the Bible in the first place? This passage Genesis 38 is in the Bible in the first place to show us something of the stunning and the surprising mercy of God. That's why this passage is here. This is the final sort of part of this text, is the stunning and the surprising mercy of God. Now, you may be sitting there saying to yourself, uh, I don't know what translation you're reading, but I'm not sure I see the stunning mercy of God in this passage. Just go with me here for a minute, okay? We see it. What we see in this passage is Tamar is abused, she's mistreated, she deceives her father-in-law, becomes pregnant by him on purpose in order to provide a family for herself, to carry on the family name. And we're told that she's pregnant 
Verse 27 says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. What this clues us into is this. What God is doing here is he is restoring to Tamar what was taken from her. Because of the wickedness of those older brothers and because of the wickedness of Judah, Tamar has been stripped of her honor, her reputation, her legacy, her family, her future, her dignity. She's been stripped of all those things. She looks like she's barren. She looks like damaged goods. No one's going to want her. No one's going to want to marry her. No one's going to want to give her to their son as a wife. She's been stripped of all of that. And what God is doing here is he is restoring to her what was taken from her. Twin boys. This was viewed as a clear sign of the blessing and the favor of God. To give birth to a son is good enough. To give birth to twin sons is a clear sign of God's favor on you. And so God is restoring to her her dignity and her honor and her future through Judah. And we see as you follow this family tree, we see the oldest son's name is Perez. We read later in scripture in the book of Ruth that Perez was the great, 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 great grandfather of King David. King David was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And so through all of the dysfunction and all the brokenness of this relationship that we see here in Genesis 38, through all of the messiness and the, the, the ugliness of this, we see that God has now grafted Tamar into his family. God has restored to her what was taken from her. Don't let this pass you by. Tamar is a Canaanite. We learned that at the beginning of Genesis 38. Tamar is a Canaanite. She is an outsider. She's a Gentile. She is not a part of the chosen family of Abraham. And what happens is that she is abused and she's mistreated by the very family that was commissioned by God to bring his blessing to the nations. Tamar is one of the Gentiles, one of the all peoples on earth that God spoke of when he said to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Tamar is exactly the kind of person that God wants to bless. He's exact, she's exactly the kind of person that God wants to graft into, to bring into his family. And the family of Abraham is so screwed up, is so messed up, is so dysfunctional, that the only way Gentiles end up in the family of God is on accident. The only way that Gentiles like Tamar end up in the family of God is in spite of the family of Abraham. Abraham's family is not out saying, wow, we want to love the Gentiles. We want to we see God's blessing come to them. They're screwed up. And we see God's mercy extended to Tamar in that he looked upon her in her situation, in her vulnerability. He looked upon her in the situation where she was abandoned, she was taken advantage of, she was abused. And God looked at her and God remembered her. Her story was not insignificant to him and it was God's delight to graft her into the family of God. And through Tamar, it is through her that the family of the Messiah comes. 
And so the, the incredible mercy of God that we see in this passage is that God has not abandoned Abraham, even though his family is a dumpster fire. Really, his family is a complete mess. There is no part of the entire Bible where you look at Abraham's family and you're like, man, boy, these people really got their stuff together. These people really get it. These people are really doing the things that God wants them to do. Every single part of the story shows you just how screwed up they are. And in spite of all of that, God does not abandon the family of Abraham. He doesn't abandon his promises. He doesn't say, you know, I've, I've had enough of you. You've sinned one too many times. I can't forgive you now that you've done this or you've done that. He doesn't do that. At every single turn, we see the mercy of God given to the screwed up family of Abraham. The mercy of God is seen not only in that he is faithful to, he's long-suffering with the family of Abraham, but also he's not forgotten people like Tamar. Those who are humbled, those who are destitute, those who are in awful circumstances, who are abused, God does not forget people like that. And in fact, you see all throughout the book of Genesis, this is a pattern, it's a theme that runs through, is you see women who are in a position of vulnerability and God sees them and God loves them and God himself cares for them. You see it with Hagar. You see it with Leah, who is passed over as the, the ugly duckling. No one wanted her as a spouse and God cared for her. We see it with Tamar. All these women who are in these positions of vulnerability, God looks upon them, he remembers them. And that's the stunning mercy of God that we see. And every single aspect of this story points us to the fact that this is not about, this, this plan of God doesn't rest upon the people who are a part of God's family. What we see is that there is God's stunning and surprising mercy that is given to people who are really screwed up. And the mercy that we see here in this passage is played out on an even larger scale as we come to the person of Jesus. And this is why I believe Matthew includes Tamar in that genealogy is he says, as you read about this man who is the Messiah, you have to understand what kind of Messiah he is. You have to understand what kind of deliverer, what kind of God he is. He's a God who is filled with long-suffering, with patient mercy. He's a God who does not forget people like Tamar. He loves people like Tamar. There's a special place in the heart of God for people who have been abused, for people who have been marginalized, for people who have been mistreated. And the genealogy of Jesus shows us she's set up. She's put on, in some ways, put on a pedestal as something for us to observe and to see the mercy of God in her life. As we look at Tamar's story, what we see and what we're going to continue to see over the next number of weeks is God's redemptive purposes in the world move forward through people like this through people like Tamar and Judah and the dysfunction and the brokenness of their families, God somehow, in his all-knowing, sovereign goodness and wisdom, God takes all of the brokenness that exists in this family and he somehow funnels it. He channels it. He puts it to work and makes it turn out for the good of his people. This is the kind of God he is. He uses people like this. His redemptive purposes in the world come to bear through people like this. Not people whose lives are well manicured, not people whose lives are put together, 
which we all know those people don't exist anyways, right? Those are the people we see on Instagram (laughs) whose lives look like they're all put together and then you get to know them and you're like, oh, you're screwed up just like I am. God's plans in the world move forward through people like this, but also God's saving work, his forgiveness, his redemption, his salvation is for people like this. It's for people who are just like Judah. It's for people who are just like Tamar. God's purposes move forward in the world through people like this, for people like this, for people like us. And this is just the beginning. We've got four more messages in this series, and these these are so good. The lives of these women are incredible. And as we continue to look at these Women, over the next number of weeks, we're going to just continue to see time and time again the incredible mercy of God, the goodness of God. We get to see who this God is and what he's like and what he's done for us. And we get to see all of it through the lives of these incredible women. So today, what we get the privilege of doing is, as we see the mercy of God that is given, we see that come to us most clearly, most fully in the person of Jesus. Jesus did not remain distant from us in the brokenness of our world in the dysfunction of our world and our relationships, he didn't say, you know, I think I'm going to hang out over here. What Christmas shows us, what the incarnation, the the coming of Jesus shows us, is that God himself got his hands in the dirt. Is that God himself was willing to accompany us, was willing to identify with us by taking on human flesh and living in the brokenness of the world that we experience. And he did so without succumbing to it. He did so without ever sinning, without turning his back on God, the Father. He lived this life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And it's through his death for us, which is, by the way, what nobody expected. Nobody expected God's Messiah, his deliverer, to come and to suffer and to die. That can't be what the Messiah is going to do. And yet the surprising reality of the cross is that God, his plans move forward in the world. Our salvation is through Jesus, the Messiah, dying for us. And so as we think about that this morning, we get the privilege of coming to the communion table where we get to remember and celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for us as an evidence of, as a clear expression of the mercy of God that is given to us, given to people like us. So as we do that, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent reflection and confession as we come to the table. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. Lord, if we are honest, we look at Judah and his family and we have to confess that we are at times far more like them than we want to admit. We want to think that we're better than that. We want to think that we are not capable of doing things like that. 
And yet we know, Lord, that that, that that poison exists in every single one of us and apart from your grace that would come to fruition in our actions. Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you. We confess we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We ask in your mercy, Lord, that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.